Chapter 16 of The Octave of Claudius. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by John Brandon. The Octave of Claudius by Barry Payne. Chapter 16. That night, immediately after leaving Angela, Claudius took a train from Gilbridge to London and then went on by the night mail north. It was a hideous journey. The man was in a fever and could not sleep. In following the Witcherleys to Gilbridge, he had acted as those weak fools act who shut their eyes and deceive themselves. It was a bitter reproach to one who had in him the makings of a strong man. He had before him horribly and vividly the certainty that he would lose his life, and that life, since now he knew that life meant love, was immeasurably valuable. And above reproaches, and above horror, came the exaltation of mutual love. Angela's words seemed to speak themselves again to him. The dawn, coming pale through the carriage windows, seemed to him symbolical of her farawayness. His life had been like a grey day, working and commonplace, and its sunset was like the gate of heaven, and the night was inevitable. It was little wonder that he could not sleep. A servant in livery was on the platform when he arrived, in a slow local train from the junction, and the carriage was waiting for him, although it had been too late for him to telegraph that he was coming. It was a wearisome drive to Sir Constantine's place. In the hall he found a servant whom he remembered, the old butler. Yes, sir. Sir Constantine is in very good health, sir. He'd expected you'd come by this train. Well, this is a pleasure, if I may say so, sir. Claudius chatted with the old man for a minute or so. They had always been friends, and it is pleasant to be welcomed. Well now, Gunning, he said, what's the news here? How's Miss Cumby? Gunning dropped his voice. Gone, sir, went Wednesday night. After telegrams had been coming and going, March in orders, I fancy. And if I might take the liberty, we're, all of us, well, we can live through the loss of her. Would have fired, too, last night, while you were in the train. But that you'll hear about, sir, but it's not for me to speak. Breakfast will be ready directly. But if you'd like to have your bath first, Claudius had his bath and made his way into the dining room. Gunning brought a message that Sir Constantine would be down directly, and Claudius was not to wait. Claudius was in love, but he was also physiologically hungry. He had scarcely begun breakfast when the door opened, and Sir Constantine, noticeably well-dressed, with a newspaper in his hand, sauntered into the room. Sir Constantine had the face of a dreamer, poetical eyes, and rather a weak chin. He had an erratic sense of humor. 
His forehead was developed in a way that showed he was not such a fool as his chin would have had you believe. He shook hands with Claudius, calmly and quietly, as if they had parted the night before. Sir Constantine had an admirable talent for ignoring anything which he wished to ignore, and it was very soon apparent that he intended to use it. While you were asleep in the train, Claudius, he said, we were having a little excitement here, a fire. That's why I'm late this morning. Nothing serious, I hope, sir, said Claudius. He had been brought up to address his father in this old-fashioned way. Just a cottage burned to the ground and not insured. I dare say it won't ruin us, but still it's a loss, of course. But your private wire to the fire station in the town. For some reason or other, it wouldn't act. That's a pity. Who had the cottage? No one at the time. Up till the night before, it had been occupied by a woman called Cumby. You know nothing about her. She did not arrive here until some time after you had left for your work. Claudius opened his eyes wider. Sir Constantine quietly repeated this pleasant fiction. Claudius smiled and accepted it. The past was to be ignored, or rather, it was to be altered, to suit the taste of Sir Constantine. He gave a little more information about Miss Cumby. He had thought her a deserving woman who had seen trouble with some knowledge of philosophy, in which, as you know, my boy, I have always taken an interest. He was willing to own that he had been deceived. An anonymous letter had arrived. He had telegraphed and had received telegrams. It was a shocking, a most deplorable and shocking case. He utterly and altogether declined to go into it, but he might say that the anonymous letter had stated the actual facts, and in consequence the woman had gone. He dwelt with an ill-concealed satisfaction on the fact that in the fire at the cottage the whole of the furniture assigned to Miss Cumby's use, and even the books which Sir Constantine had lent her, were completely destroyed. He spoke of a poacher seen lurking about the grounds, but Claudius had little doubt who the incendiary was. After breakfast, Sir Constantine took Claudius round the stables. A pony, he mentioned, had been stolen by gypsies. Then they wandered out into the paddock. At the end of the paddock was a disused slate quarry, deeply excavated and fenced off some distance from its edge. Sir Constantine climbed over the fence, and Claudius followed. Under a tree, Claudius saw a neat little governess cart with a set of plated harness, the cushions, a rug, and a little clock lying in it. What is that doing here, sir? Claudius asked with some surprise. Sir Constantine chose to misunderstand the question. What is that? Oh, that's the cart that Miss Cumby used to drive. He picked up the shafts. Neat little thing, isn't it? Runs so lightly. 
He pushed it from him. There was a loud crash from a projecting jagged ledge and a splash in the deep water in the pit below. The cart had gone over. Good heavens, Claudius exclaimed. Careless of me, said Sir Constantine. Really very careless. He fumbled for his cigarette papers. We'd better send a man to see after it, said Claudius. Not worthwhile, they retraced their steps to the house. The fire, the theft of the pony, the accident to the cart were all perfectly obvious. Sir Constantine would not allow one trace of Miss Cumby to remain. By the way, said Sir Constantine, as that woman displeased me, it might be as well if her name were not mentioned. In fact, I utterly and altogether decline to have her name mentioned in my presence. Very well, sir. And now, what about yourself? You will be here sometimes, I hope. Then came rather a difficult part for Claudius. There was so little about himself that he could tell. It was unfortunate, but he would have to return to London almost at once. He was leaving England on Sunday. You will not be away for long. I do not really know exactly. It does not depend entirely on me. Yes, your work, said Sir Constantine vaguely. A man ought to be able to support himself by his work. Even if it is not necessary, it increases his self-respect. I'm glad to see you a capable man. I reverence capacity. You used to have, I remember, a tendency towards, uh, writing. I've written a novel, said Claudius. It has been accepted and will be published, and that will be the end of it. Let us hope not. From what I know of your abilities, speaking frankly, I do not think your novel will be either good enough or bad enough for a complete failure. But a novel, I could have wished it had been a philosophical work. I have not the knowledge, nor I, nor I. But I'm taking a great interest in it. I've gone back to my Greek. Aristotle is very difficult. So is Plato. I employ the classical master at the grammar school here three evenings in a week. I also use translations. That is, I have arranged for the classical master and the translations. I only began on Wednesday, but yesterday, though I had other things to think about, I gave some hours to the subject, and I already have the idea. The Socratic Gospel, the Gospel according to Socrates, in that lies the only real consolation. He warmed to his newly acquired pet. Not only for the man of education, he went on, the Socratic gospel is universal. The bricklayer may leave his crude salvationism. The hysterical woman, he said it without the least sign of embarrassment, may leave her silly spiritualistic nonsense. The gospel, according to Socrates, is the gospel of the future. It may fall to my lot to present it in English in a popular form. It would be an honorable work. On the title page, The Gospel of Socrates, translated, arranged, and edited 
for the use of the English-speaking races by. And so he went on, galloping his latest conviction into the land of nowhere. It was half sad and half ridiculous. But the son had known the father for so long now that the exposition neither depressed him nor amused him. It was his father as he had always known him, and now once more his good friend. Sir Constantine showed very little curiosity. He took it for granted that Claudius would come to see him again in two or three months, or possibly later. Claudius did not undeceive him. That could be better done by letter, at the last moment. On the station platform, a few minutes before the train came in by which Claudius was to return, Sir Constantine remarked hesitatingly that Claudius looked well, fairly, only fairly, well-dressed but well-fed, comfortable. He was very pleased to see it. By this route he arrived at what he wanted to say. But all the same, my boy, I don't want you to be absolutely dependent on your work, your novels, for the comforts and necessities of life. Now, I find from my bankers that there has been a very grave irregularity in paying you your allowance. In fact, for some little time it has not been paid. Even the best of banks seem to make silly mistakes and misinterpret orders sometimes. Now I must have my wishes carried out. And I have made this arrangement. I have made over to you the sum of ten thousand pounds. It's invested, and I shouldn't alter the investment if I were you. But the money is yours absolutely, and if you ever had any pressing need for a large sum, you could of course realize. The interest will be paid into your account at the bank. Strelin, old Strelin, arranged it for me. He thought it the best plan. Strelin was Sir Constantine's country solicitor, and his opinion of Sir Constantine's plans was generally complimentary. Here's your train, the old man went on. Now, take this. He drew an envelope from his pocket and handed it to Claudius. It's the particulars about the money. Certainly not. I absolutely and altogether decline to be thanked. Merely my duty, and at the same time, my pleasure. He shook Claudius warmly by the hand, and without waiting a moment longer hurried from the station, as if escaping from the consequences of a shameful act. Claudius found in his traveling bag, placed there by his father's hand, a volume of Grote's History of Greece, with certain passages marked. On the flyleaf was scrawled an injunction to him to read the book on his journey, and post it back when he arrived. End of chapter 16 Recording by John Brandon